your building is 95% made of the same parts and then there's the 5 or 10% at the end that's different that makes that building unique. And it takes a long time for the industry to get there because everybody wants to sort of day one, this is the bit we're going to use, but it has to evolve. Hello, innovators. I'm Todd Wyant and welcome to the Bridging the Gap podcast presented by Applied Software Graytech Group. You're invited to join our MEP and construction innovation adventure with a mission to propel this great industry forward. My guest today is Nick Kubre, CEO of Howick. He's the driver in the company's pursuit of innovation, and he's the third generation of Kubre's to champion this family-owned business and has been involved in framing technology and industry development since his late teens. He has a deep understanding of the global construction industry and advocating for more efficient and sustainable construction practices throughout the industry. Welcome to the show, Nick. Thanks, Doug. So you were raised in the construction industry. What about it kind of gripped you to want to make uh, turn your career and carry on this tradition? Yeah, well, it's a, because it's a family business. We sort of started in school holidays and all that sort of fun stuff, doing everything in the business. So um, got a good sort of grounding around all the random machinery we did and all the different stuff and then getting into the construction side as well. So so great opportunity to see what people are doing and then see potential better ways of doing things. Um, but more from a manufacturing point of view, not from a, a we never dirty hands on site building stuff for buildings as such other than things for ourselves. So sort of looking from that machine point of view is like if, if you were building it like a car or like another piece of machinery, how could we make construction move down that same path? It's been a long and slow moving road. Um, we always thought that it was going to be, you know, four or five years and everybody would be up to speed and all doing the same thing. And it's just not like that. The construction industry moves pretty slowly, but when it does grab onto something, it sort of dives right in. Yeah. So are you starting to see that kind of momentum pick up around it or still the, the slow slog through it? Oh, it started probably in the last five years ago to really pick up momentum and lots of different spaces. So there's the modular builders and the, and the traditional house builders are starting to switch over a bit more to steel frame and panelized systems, um, driven a bit by the cost of materials, but also the, the lack of labor. So that's one of the big drivers and yeah. one of the big pull factors. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, so let's get into some of the, the BIM side of it. How can BIM actually connect data to, to leverage for the, real world practical application of things. Yeah. So if I just to start right at the very start, when we first started building the machine sort of 25, 30 years ago, you know, obviously BIM didn't really exist at that point. So you'd get a set of, if you were lucky, DWGs, but typically it was PDFs or even pencil drawings occasionally of this is what we want to make. So that process was a yeah. kind of an add on process. It wasn't being done. So someone had to sit down and design the frames for the machines to make frames for buildings. Um, now that BIM's come along in more of a controlled sort of fashion, you've already got the model. The model comes for, as a Revit model from the architect, so it's got 99% you know, of the information that we need to build the framing. So then we've got products like Struxoft, and there's a whole host of other things as well that we can work with to generate that framing for the building. So that BIM model now is not really an additional cost. It's kind of there already. So what we get now is you actually get the cost savings by leveraging that work that's already been done. Nice. You brought up Struxoff. How are you leveraging Struxoff in the, the process? 
So when when we get those Revit models from people, obviously Revit itself is a native output to framing machines. So and it's typically the favourite of architects in certain markets. So the US is very strong. Um, UK is becoming stronger as well. So you need a piece of software in the middle that can actually do that framing, that panelization piece and all of the other things like your boarding layout and all those kind of details you need to actually build. So Struxoft performs that piece in the middle of it, connects the raw model with the machines. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, what's the, the real impact from your vantage point of, of creating the, the more lean and efficient processes really around material waste because as you're you're getting more efficient you're gonna ideally waste less material so but what's the what's the real world uh impact on that yeah so it it can be huge because you're doing that design up front so you actually know how much material you're going to use before you start so typically if you look at one of our machines the waste is somewhere around one to two percent of the steel that's recyclable so it goes through the circuit again Um, we've seen people down as low as half a percent waste But if you're doing that from, say, stud and track, where you're buying lengths of steel and cutting it in the factory, that waste can be up to 30%. Same with timber. If it's not managed properly, you're getting a a long length of material, cutting it away and throwing 30 or 20% of it back in the bin. So that's where the big savings come from. But it's also the knock-on savings. So things like fitting doors and windows to the panels, if you know exactly what the tolerances are, and we're working to plus or minus half a millimetre on the framing, you can make sure everything fits first time. So there's a big saving comes in the labor as well. So for instance, we've just done a project with with a new system we're developing where we've managed to pull 50% of the install time out of the project. So you either have less people on site or you do it a lot faster. So that's really important in the current climate globally because everybody's struggling for labor and time. Yeah, no, that's huge. 50%. Wow. (laughs) That's, that's awesome. Uh, so, as the construction industry starts to kind of embrace more of the the manufacturing lean manufacturing mindset and and model what does it actually take to really go and lean into modular for the industry as a whole yeah so it's a modular has its place it's not perfect for everything but where it's good it's really good um and the process of it really is it just takes a bit of time to get there. So we see lots of people setting up these huge modular factories, um, but the guys that seem to be very successful start small. So they might start with one component mm. or one wall type, or you know, they're doing the floors mm. or the ceilings, or they don't go right into building modular buildings you know, day one. And I think that's an important piece of the learning is you, you start to substitute out the easy bits and automate those easy bits. And then eventually the harder bits will take care of themselves. Um, things like you know you can design the building with 10 different wall thicknesses in it but in reality you probably get away with two or three would actually do the building and it might not be the most efficient use of the materials but it's the most efficient way to build the building because as soon as you add another wall type so we would say we're getting out to 10 wall types you've got 10 wall types to manage so if you've only got three wall types to manage you can start to optimize those walls to do different things um, whether they're load bearing or non-load bearing and you start to get this kit of parts that your building is 95% made of the same parts. And then there's the five or 10% at the end that's different that makes that building unique. And it takes a long time for the industry to get there because everybody wants to sort of day one, this is the bit we're gonna use, but it has to evolve. Um, And this is where some of the modeling helps us a lot because we can actually basically on the fly remodel that whole building. Because if you're doing it as modules, there might be a, let's say there's a hundred or a thousand modules 
you don't build the hundred all in one hit. You build one and then you build another one and then you refine those. And so once you get to the third or fourth one, you should have it fairly well refined that you can actually make use of those savings of time and materials. Mm. Yeah, no, that's interesting. So, uh, you know, you brought up that kind of incremental approach and, and learning as you go. What's what should maybe the, the discovery and, and learning curve look like and, and what's it involved? How do you how do you be able to identify those things that you need to tweak along the way? Yeah, so it sort of splits into two camps. There's the people that are already doing modular stuff already where they're just maybe substituting one product for another. Um, for them, it's quite easy. But if you're starting from scratch, you, you've almost got to learn from other people in the industry. So we've worked with a lot of our customers globally where we'll say someone's interested in modular. How about you go to someone who's already doing it to get your sort of first prototypes done and get the framing at least supplied by them because they know how it goes together and they know all those little tricks that you're going to have to learn from scratch. So to give you a bit of a boost and then it's kind of start small and build. Um, you, know, you might, you can't do bathroom pods, full volumetric modules and you know, load bearing roofs all on day one. You've got to pick one and start with it. Um, and it, they might be separate different businesses using different machines. They're not, you know, it's not one size fits all. Um, yeah, no, that's interesting. So, uh, I think you may have just been kind of touching on it there, but what do people get wrong about modular? Yeah, the, the biggest one I see quite often is where they say, I'm going to build a box and it's going to be, you know, let's say it's 25 foot by 40 foot. And that's the box I'm going to build and everything's going to be built out of that box. And then someone comes along and wants a 42 foot box and they can't do it just because they've sort of pushed themselves into a corner. Um, the other one is that around that material thing. So, our machines can run multiple different gauges of material and people try to optimize that. You know, they might run 18 gauge and 16 gauge and 20 gauge material for the walls and mix and match. But then of course you've got three materials to handle. So you're actually in some cases better. And one of the big customers we had in the UK did this, just went to 16 gauge for everything and said, yeah, we're going to put a tiny bit more material in, but there's less handling, nothing can go wrong. You know, him forbid someone puts the lightweight module at the bottom of a stack of 10, 10 modules, then we've got a major issue. So they can eliminate those things. So you've really got to watch that costing thing. If you, you don't want to kind of QS it to death to get the bare minimum material in it, because it's mm -hmm. actually going to cost you in the end. Um, and it's mm -hmm. that simple building thing too. Again, it's just, you've got to go through the process and you've got to build a few and you've got to be prepared to take a bit of time to get it right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So kind of leaning into that, how should people think and then measure the, the ROI that comes with a, a modular construction framework? Yeah. Well, the, the biggest thing is obviously feeding it. You, you've got to have enough work there to feed it. Um, and if you've got enough work, the ROI is very quick. We've seen some people repay their machines in sort of six months time because they've had the work lined up and they just launch into 24 seven. But mostly it's mm -hmm. sort of three, it's a three year process and things do change along the way. Um, we also see people that, you know, it's not just mod, mod, volumetric boxes. It's sometimes it's panelized. It's sometimes it's right down to it's a single wall component or a um, services shaft or some MEP components that they can optimize by making some components. And those are the guys that seem to be the most successful. They've started with that one thing, like a um, you know, service wall, for instance. And they've got mm -hmm. that right, or a, a hospital headboard is another good example. 
get that right, and then the next step is to make the whole modular pod, and then the next step is to make the whole volumetric box. Mm -hmm. So how do you go about really getting the, the buy-in and, and getting people excited from you know CEO level to the, the BIM guys to the, the people out installing it, covering that kind of that, that full spectrum of, of personas? How do you get them bought in and excited? Yeah, it's, it's always a challenge. Um, what we tend to find is the sort of small, medium companies are always a bit easier because you've got that direct contact with all the same people in the same room. When we get yeah, to some of the bigger sure. players, it's a little bit more challenging because they're not generally on the shop floor. They don't see it. Um, they can see the opportunity there, but it's a matter of sort of at that high level, the opportunity is there to make the get the time savings and to get the better buildings out the other end. But they've got to work as a team and that's where we run into the biggest challenge if one of those key stakeholders really doesn't want to do it for some reason it does make it hard but we typically find once they've started and once they've kind of had a machine for a while or used framing from somewhere for a while they start to see the benefits roll up and they see it fall over into other places like I mentioned before things like a good example is um, kitchen benches so we've got a house builder here in New Zealand and they actually pre-order all their stone bench tops because they know that the walls are going to be this square they're going to be this size they can guarantee they're going to be within you know, a millimeter of size when they're finished putting the building up. So that knock on means that, for instance, you've got a six week wait for stone cutting at the moment. They can pre-order that six weeks before the building goes up. So they don't have those knock on effects. And I think that's one of the biggest points is by using the BIM model, by designing everything at the start and then using accurate framing technology, you can then get those knock on effects. And that's where the savings are. Like if these guys are talking about 30% savings on a modular building or even a traditional build done with new technology, that 30% savings is not out of one piece. It's like lots of one and two and 3% savings along the way. And that mm -hmm. makes a huge difference. Um, but you've got to be prepared. Things have got to be right. You know, the concrete slab's got to be right. It's one of the big ones for a house. So we've got some customers here that then they pay for the concrete slab. They pay a lot more for the concrete slab, but it has to be right. It has to be level and true. And if it's level and true, the rest of the building's easy. If it's not level and true, or its dimensions are out in some way, it becomes a nightmare for them because then you've got to replan the whole project. And I think those are the ones that get missed because sometimes they blame the, the modular or the offsite component for being wrong or being too accurate or whatever the issue happens to be, but it's actually a knock-on effect of something else. Hey, innovators. Is there a way to prepare your company for successful implementation of technological innovation? After over 115 episodes talking with some of the best minds in the construction industry, the answer is a resounding yes. There are building blocks that you can put into place that will form the foundation for your company to successfully implement technology. I have compiled my thoughts from those conversations into a new ebook simply titled Foundational Building Blocks for Successful Tech Adoption. You can download the ebook for free at our website, bridgingthegappod.com. After you have, I'd love to hear your feedback. As always, keep innovating. Yeah, uh, that's interesting. Uh, so walk me through maybe one of your uh, standout project. Uh, highlight, it could be something that, that went wrong and you learn from it too but uh what's a what's a a use case of where you've seen it done well yeah so there's quite a few good examples in the uk um bathroom pods are always a standout one because they're 
they're one that pays off quite quickly once you've got the system right. So you might build, so for a hotel chain, there might be several thousand bathrooms a year and they're all the same. They've got a left yeah. hand, a right hand and a accessible one. So for those, they set up the line and they'll pump out. And one customer we've got in the UK does about 180 bathrooms a week. Wow. For a hotel chain. And they just pump them out. They've got two machines sitting at the end of the line feeding the framing. And then from there on, it just goes process to process. They they line them, they tile them, they plumb them, they test the plumbing, they fully assemble, and then they go off to site. So they're always quite good ones to see. Um, then we've got things like we've done with the guys at Windover um, in Boston. We did that project with the Autodesk Technology Center, and the guys from Struxoft were involved with that too. So we developed a system with a telescopic stud. So the stud actually compresses down in size, so we can carry it through lift shafts and put it into buildings that are not accurate. So your typical process for those ones would be that we'd go in and we'd 3D scan the building. So we've got a model and then we'd draw the framing to fit the model. And remembering again, it's plus or minus half a millimeter. So if anything's not right, it really becomes a challenge for the installer. So the idea with the telescopic system was that you know, we've got two or three feet of adjustment in each panel. So we can take it in if the roof's not level, floor's not level, we can realign the panel in situ on site and it's really easy to install. So in that process, we did the scan anyway, because we wanted to have a scan to start with, because it was going into a hundred year old building. Then the guys up in um, at Struxoft in Canada actually drew the panels up and produced all the shop drawings. We sent the shop drawings to the Autodesk Technology Center where we've got a machine there and they ran all the panels. The Windover construction team picked them up in their truck and took them to site and installed them. So it was quite an easy process and that sort of led on to some other projects we were done where some of these big savings are coming in because you don't have to go and scan the building if it's a new building it doesn't matter if the concrete floor is not quite level or they've come in and they put a screed topping in and now all of a sudden you've got an inch less headspace in the room we've got that adjustability to actually do that so that's where we see the potential for the future is having things like that we, we were we were too smart and too accurate to start with so we've kind of taken a step back as there how do we get it back to the guys that were starting track that were cutting stuff on site without them cutting stuff on site? Yeah. So there's the speed aspect of that, but there's also the other side of it is the wastage aspect. So if you look at one of those buildings, typically where they're doing a shop fit out or a refurb, they'll bring in a pallet load of stud and a pallet load of track and they'll cut it up and they'll make the panels. And then at the end of the job, there's maybe a third of a pallet load of each of those components left over that have to be taken away again. Now, if the building's all closed in and all the doors are in and everything, that's a major where with this system, there isn't any waste. So what goes onto the site gets used. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a huge raft of benefits, but it's a matter of getting people designing with that and th sort of in thought when they're doing it. So, you know, we can take a standard panel if it's been designed as a standard panel and then get the team at off to actually go and optimize that panel for our system and just change those panels out. So as long as you know, the stud wall thickness stays the same it's not an issue if we're changing wall thicknesses then you've got to redesign everything but if it's you know if it's a three and five eight stud and we're swapping it for a three and five eight stud it's quite an easy process so those things are there they're easy for people to get onto and try it's just a matter of getting the designers within organizations to actually start thinking about how they can use it and have understanding how they can use it and that that's always the biggest challenge is to get someone to try something new yeah oh for sure uh so Walk me through, like, what's the, what's the reaction when people see the, uh, this efficiency gains and, and the, the reduction in, in material waste and everything, how, 
well, how do they respond? What, how do they calculate it? Do they, does that light bulb kind of click instantly or is it a, a slow progression over time? Uh, it's again, it's all those key stakeholders. You've got to get them all on board. So what we found with the projects that we've done here, we, we've done a few projects in New Zealand now, and we've just done a big hotel building, 16 stories high. Um, getting that first couple of floors through was a bit of a challenge because you know, the, the contractors weren't overly happy about something new and the design guys weren't sure how it was going to work. And obviously the, the financial guys were all saying, well, how much money is this going to cost us or save us? So once we got those first ones in, it was great. And the, the contractors, you know, it's really easy for them because they don't have to think about how to level stuff up. The panels are accurate and right. The door openings are accurate and right. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know those 50% time savings, you know, it, it means either they go faster through the building or they just have more time to do everything else. Um, one of the things we've seen with it is when a project's been off track, because a couple of them we have come into late, we've managed to pull the project back either onto track or pretty close to back to onto track um, to get it working. So all of a sudden we see that they, they like it. So this particular project I'm talking about in New Zealand, they've now converted their next three construction projects over to our telescopic system. Nice. So they obviously like it enough that they've right. gone away from the standard stud systems they're using. Um, and it's when you get into complex things, like we've got, uh, I don't know if you know much about double T concrete floor slabs, which basically it's a, it looks like a T shape. Uh-huh. And they've got to fill in the gaps between the bases with fire um, retardant. So at the moment, when doing that by manual labor with steel frames, pretty hard, but we developed a little telescopic system to fit in those gaps that has the flexibility. So you know, we've got a couple of inches movement here and there to close the gaps up. So that for instance, has gone from a 45 minute process per sort of two meter segment of wall to two minutes. So the guys go up on the scissor lift and just push the frame into place, um, seal it off and they're done. Um, so that makes a huge difference to them. So it's finding those little niche pieces is really useful for us to actually get into new clients because we can say, well, yeah, okay, maybe the, it's not that much quicker on your really standard, plain, boring wall. But when you get into situations like this where you need the flexibility, there's huge savings. Right. Um, yeah, for sure. Have you seen more people coming uh, on board and willing to adapt into this kind of mindset? with all the uncertainties in supply chain as of late? Yeah, definitely. It, it's it's one of those things is the, as I say, the smaller companies seem to move a bit faster, Yeah. Um, but a lot of them don't have the volumes to do it because mm. um, you're, you're talking sort of a quarter of a million dollar investment to start with up to maybe a million dollar investment if you want multiple size machines. Mm-hmm. So it's quite a big investment, but we are seeing a lot of people looking at it very hard, especially people that are doing all the design work in the BIM design first anyway, because they've actually, that's a small leap at that point. Um, the biggest challenge is when you get into the smaller builders is they don't have the design team behind them or they're using contract design who uh, don't understand the project very well. So that's the challenge is you've got to have an in-house design team really, or at least a couple of in-house design people who can oversee those projects to make them happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and that supply chain thing is becoming very important to people because you know, if, if you haven't got a structure to hang anything off, you really can't do anything. And we're seeing it very well in Australia and New Zealand that you know, you're missing that one piece, like a wall lining or a window frame or something like that. The whole project just stops dead. Right. So a lot more people are bringing more and more in house, which is adding a bit of complexity. And again, you've got to be a little bit careful. You don't try and do too many things at once. Yeah. Oh, well, it's trying to eliminate the. It's a balancing act. You're you're trying to eliminate mm-hmm. the uncertainties where you can, but not 
go overboard and then then you're overexposed in other areas and so you're trying to figure out how how do you walk this tightrope <laughs> in the in the right okay. most efficient way <laughs> uh so if you could kind of you, you would have all power snap your fingers and, and innovate one thing in the industry what would you choose to innovate the real big struggle we have is with engineering design so there are lots of engineering softwares out there but a lot of the guys doing the detailing and designing are not structural engineers mm -hmm. and you kind of don't expect them to be everyone's got this sort of idea that would be nice to be able to pull a model in and just engineer it to click of a button and decide what framing to put in it and what building codes and i think we're still a long way from that but we're starting to see a few things happen. One of the ones I quite like the look of is the generative design stuff coming out of Autodesk at mm -hmm. the moment. I know it's more on the mechanical side rather than the actual structural construction side. That's more layouts and bits and pieces, but it would be quite nice to actually build a structure, say it's a three-story building and you can then carry the loads from the roof and automate all the load lines through the building and then optimize the structure from there. Yeah. I think that's one of the big things. Um, the other one we've seen a little bit of, which is still in its early stages, is sort of automated routing for all the plugs. So for all the, your wiring and your plumbing and everything to punch the holes in the framing. If you tell it you know, where, where the access to the building is, where the meter board is, where all your light switches are, it then will automatically lay out all the holes that you need to run your wiring and cable runs. So that stuff's sort of coming and then that leads on to all the plug and play electrical systems and the plug and play plumbing systems so you're sort of starting to get to that automotive space a little bit with where we're automating the bits that someone was sitting down and spending a lot of time mm -hmm. doing not automating the assembly yet and that's something we've seen quite a lot is a lot of people leap into trying to automate the assembly of the building and that's not quite so easy because every building's different i always sort of look at it if you look at a car you know, they're built on a platform. They share a lot of parts. So a, a left-hand door on a Ford F-150 is always a left-hand door on a Ford F-150. They don't try and then put that left-hand door on the right-hand side, which in construction, we seem to be pretty good at doing that. We'll, we'll just move that window. We'll change its size. We'll change its height. That panel's different. So if you then have to program something to screw that frame together and nail all the boarding onto it, it's a different panel. It's a completely different right. program. So that piece is not quite so easy yet. I'm sure it's going to come because there's so much processing power out there now, but it's not as easy as just click of a button that does it. It still requires someone to understand and run a test run mm -hmm. panel. So that's where I think we're struggling a bit. So let's be efficient with the bits we can be efficient and then we'll get to these other harder bits later yeah. on. No, that makes sense. Uh, so there's there's so much change happening in the, the industry right now and with new technology coming online all the time and everything, but where do you see, if we go out in five years into the future, how is construction going to look different five years from now versus how it is today? I think you're going to see a lot less people on the building sites. You're going to see a lot more people in factories or mm -hmm. you know, actually doing stuff away from the site. And that's going to have a huge knock on effect to cost because you're not moving all those people. Mm -hmm. Uh, always an interesting little fact that came out of one of the modular builders we were talking about in the UK, and it was a bit of a hard thing to quantify. They said, is, you know, road traffic accidents around the sites, when they went to offsite, instead of having you know, 400 people on site, they had 50 people on site. There was less road traffic accidents in the area because there's less people, there's less parking, there's less truck deliveries. Mm -hmm. And how do you quantify those things? It's pretty hard. It's, but when you sort of stand back and look at it, go, well, it does make sense. Sure it does. You're, you're just not moving the people. Um, 
and same thing about weather and that. You know, one of the big issues we have with the off-site side of things with modules is wind. You know, when you're stacking them multi-storey high, your crane time is totally dictated by the weather. So you know, we start probably having to model some of that sort of stuff, what modelling weather patterns into when can we deliver what, you know, which part of the site should we be working on in which conditions. There's all that stuff that's making huge changes, but again, none of them are instant. Yeah, no, that, that makes total sense. So uh, being a, an innovation guy, uh, how do you take the kind of the, the, the buzzwordness and the, the, the theory of innovation, how do you make it practical in construction yeah so it, it's very much sort of end user driven so quite a lot of our innovation has come from people saying i've got this problem i don't know how to do this and we always sort of stand back and say well it's okay let's forget all the building rules and regulations and all that sort of stuff to start with you know if we were going to build it from a mechanical point of view how would we do it so you know it might be a different connection it might be a different lifting point and so we figure that out and then we go okay now how do we get it to conform to the rules so we're yeah. allowed to do it and that may be through testing. It may just be because it's accepted. Um, they make a big difference. The other thing we see is a lot of people trying to basically do the same thing, but everybody wants to put their stamp on it. You know, one of the good case and points is like a um, roofing batten. Everybody's got a different size batten. It's got a different pattern on it that's you know, slightly different. It might be a millimeter different or a sixteenth of an inch different right. to be different. And that's something as an industry we've got to try and figure out is how do we innovate together on some of these things. It's a component that everybody uses. No one uses the hugest volume of it to warrant actually doing all the fire testing and everything. So, you know, can we work together on things like that? And you know, you're going to have special things that are unique to each customer, but make sure they're actually unique and there's a point for them being unique. Um, you know, a, a great case in point is we do a lot in Australia with stud framing. And there's a 75 millimeter, a 76 millimeter, a 78 millimeter, and a 79 millimeter stud. And they're not compatible with anyone else's. And the, when you really get to the bottom of it, it's just because people <laughs> want to be different. Um, and there might be some slight engineering better than a 50, a 76 might be slightly better than a 75, but in reality, safety factor swallows it yeah. anyway. So it, it's, it's interesting where the industry goes on some of these innovation trends. But then on the other side of it, you've got people doing some really unique stuff with standard products for how do they build their modules? How do they lift them? Um, using standard service holes for different applications and that sort of stuff. So they're always, as I said before, driven by what the customers actually need. And we're quite lucky that we can stand back a bit. We're not in the building industry directly. We're sort of in the mechanical machinery industry. So we can think slightly differently to some of the things that are yeah. already out there. No, I think that's good stuff. Of you don't need to be different just for the sake of being different and, and see where there's common cause and, and where as an industry, we can come together and, and have so that, that commonality uh, in, instead of making everything a unicorn. Yeah. makes a ton of sense. So yeah. how do people find out more information and, and connect with you? Yeah. So um, best to go to our website, which is howickltd.com, or you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, just Nick, search for Nick Cobra. There's only one, so it's easy to find. Um, or, and we've got some guys up in the States and in the UK and Australia and France and all over the place. So we've got people. So if you go to the website, you'll find out more details. Um, we always do lots of trade shows. So we're going to Autodesk University this year, which I'm sure we'll see you guys That's at as back well. in person. It'll be exciting. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's always good to do those back in person. It makes a huge difference. Um, and we always try to do something a little bit different there to show off what you can do. Um, 
and yeah, just just reach out through the normal channels. Um, I'm always keen to talk to people about what they're doing and what they're trying to achieve. Nice. Sounds good. Well, final question for you. What does innovation mean to you? It's really just doing something with something you've already got or actually coming up with a new feature for something that's already there. Um, the kind of real clean sheet innovations very hard these days because there's so many things have been already done. We can dig into them. So it's about making stuff really efficient and delivering the best product you can with what you've got. Awesome. Sounds good. Nick, thanks so much for taking the time and, and joining the show. I really appreciated the, the conversation. Great. Thanks for having me. And now it's time for my Todd takes from this episode. First take. When starting a modular process, it's best to take the incremental approach. This allows you the flexibility to learn as you go and make real world adjustments to your process for greater long-term efficiencies. Don't feel pressure to eat the elephant all in one bite. Second take, reducing material waste starts on the front side by knowing the details in the design. That is where the cost savings really come into play. And finally, be willing to share your insights with others and ask questions of those that have gone before you. When we are able to learn from others in the industry and share the commonalities, we are able to move the whole industry forward. Not everything needs to be a unicorn. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you are interested in learning more, you can visit our sponsor, Applied Software Great Tech Group at asti.com for more information. You can listen to this podcast anytime by simply going to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to check out our website, bridgingthegappod.com. As always, I'm Todd Wyant, thanking you for joining us on the Bridging the Gap podcast. Keep innovating. Bridging the Gap is directed and produced by Todd Wyant, edited and produced by Eric Daniel. Bridging the Gap is an applied software production. Copyright Applied Software 2021.